0: Open to the Gospel of Mark. We'll read the first verse. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hallelujah. Today, beloved, we're going to look at an introduction. I'm going to give an introduction to the book gospel of Mark. Then we'll look at the first verse as we commence a study. I don't know how long it will take. May we have ears to hear God's word this morning. Augustine said, and I quote, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, The old is revealed. Now, having spent the past two and a half years in the Old Testament, uh, we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ prefigured. We've seen him anticipated through the life of Joseph in Genesis, followed by an exposition in the book of Exodus. And and there, uh, in the old, we were dealing with types and shadows. And today, as we enter the new They're shown for what they are. We no longer live under types and shadows. Here, revealed to us, is the Savior. Jesus Christ, Son, only Son of the living God. Today we enter into the study of of His work the very person of Jesus Christ to this, the gospel of Mark. And the goal for us, beloved, the goal, the overarching goal in our study is the shaping of our Christian lives. The shaping, once again, of our Christian lives by the very life of Christ. Okay, that's the goal. Okay, and this ought not to be a passive kind of hearing because passivity only leads to stagnation, and lethargy. But may this be an engaged, steady, living, growing, active Christian life as we study the life of Christ. Life that's pleasing to God, amen? For we were created for His pleasure. Actually, we were recreated, born again to the Spirit. Be pleasing the sight of God. Because the life of Christ, what we will see, actually reshapes our lives. We're we're continually being conformed. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We looked at that last week. So Mark's gospel, as we look at it, it's the shortest of the four. It was first to be composed, written in Rome, from Rome. And I I want you to think and, and understand realize that the gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John in particular, they were not literary experts. Or to put it in contemporary terms, they, they were not those men who preferred sitting around writing books and contributing to you know, theological journals and the like. These were very ordinary men who had encountered an extraordinary person and power. Jesus Christ, his person and his power, who, by God's Holy Spirit, were directed to write down the events that they had experienced while walking with him or as those events had been recorded to them so that others might come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's believed that Mark, who wrote this gospel... Wrote it uh, drawing from the preaching and the testimony of Peter. Okay, Mark, who's the author, is is John Mark. And he's connected to Peter, we see in Acts chapter 12. um, John Mark was the son of a very prominent woman in Jerusalem. We read in chapter 12, while Peter was imprisoned, remember, he was radically awakened by an angel. Chains fell off. He walks out of the prison. He walks out amongst many uh, guards of that prison. And when he comes to his senses, he realizes, wow, this isn't a vision. This is really happening. And in verse 12 of chapter 12 of Acts, when he realizes this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, the house there being identified with a woman and not a man means that she was likely a widow. Okay, there were many Marys in the Bible. And this one happens to be the mother of John Mark. Now, John Mark also, as, as you're well aware, accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. In chapter 12, verse 25, we read Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and uh, there was John Mark with them. Now, after that, during that missionary journey, um, this John Mark was was overcome with some fog of uncertainty, and he ends up departing from Paul and and Barnabas. We see that in Acts 13 and verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from from Paphros, and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's John Mark. So he departs from them. And later, as you know also, there would be a dispute between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Paul did not want Mark accompanying them on the second missionary journey. Barnabas did. So there was a sharp dispute between the two of them. In Acts 15 and verse 39. You remember they separated. All's not lost, though. Right? There was reconciliation. Uh, we actually read in Colossians chapter 4, um, Paul informs us in that letter that, that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, they were cousins. So later, there's reconciliation because we find Mark once again alongside Paul in Rome and we read of that in 2 Timothy. Paul says that Mark is actually useful to me. Peter also mentions Mark in the 5th chapter, 1 Peter, as his son in the faith. So that's John Mark. There's your author. John Mark uh, wrote this around 55 AD, just 20 or so years after the death and resurrection of our Lord. And he wrote to a predominantly Gentile audience. And that belief is supported by the fact that Mark explains certain Jewish customs, as we'll read, And he also translates Aramaic expressions for his audience. Now, the common language of Galilean Jews, including Jesus, was Aramaic. So the gospel written in Greek, hence we see the necessity for for Mark to clarify. For instance, when when Jesus um, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, we read in Mark 5.41, you can look at that. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means which means, he says, he translates for them, little girl I say to you, arise. So there's John There's John Mark. He's the author, written around 55. He writes to a predominantly Gentile audience. Um, Mark's style, we'll see, is very fast-paced. I mean, it's like a horse out of the gate. It's just, boom, action-packed from one scene to the next. Now, Mark, as you'll see, mainly records the actions of Jesus and not a whole lot of his teaching as compar- compared to, say, Matthew. There's very few teaching sections in the Gospel of Mark. We do see some teaching in chapter 4, some in chapter 13, and then it's just spattered about in mean, the rest of the Gospel account. But it, it's, it's an on-the-move narrative. I mean, it really it draws you in, man, to the scene. It's like you're there. And it was intended to be read aloud. And when it's read aloud, you see how vivid it is. The the, the narrative comes to life. So Mark, as we'll see, um, often speaks in the present tense to describe past events, right? giving it this impression of immediacy. As a matter of fact, he uses the word immediately over 40 times. Immediately, He's just on the move. And one theme, one theme that we see in Mark's gospel is the failure to recognize Jesus as who he is. Whether it's the crowds, his own disciples, the, the Jewish re- religious sect of the day, and even his own family for that matter. So, in the first half of Mark, it's it's filled kind of with confusion, with misunderstanding about the identity of Jesus. And the only ones who are not confused about the identity of Jesus from the outset are demons, which we'll see in just a moment. Boom! They know who he is! (laughs) That'll wake you up. In the second half, the narrative moves from confusion to hostility. So the the, the story travels from the enthusiasm of the Galilean crowds to the hostility of the Jerusalem council. And then geographically, okay, geographically, we will move from Galilee to the wider regions of Galilee and then from there right into Jerusalem. And then the high point of the gospel narrative of Mark lands us at Caesarea Philippi. Smack dab in the middle of the book, you hear the confession of Peter, you are the Christ. That's the watershed moment. That's the turning point. That's the definitive confession of the book of Mark. Everything in the first half of the book leads up to it. Everything from, the, from that point on flows from it. You are the Christ. So the front end of Mark's gospel demonstrates Jesus is the Christ by way of his words and his works. The back end proves that he's the Christ, By his death and resurrection. And one third of Mark's account is given to the final weeks of Jesus' life. One third. So the goal of of his book, of of Mark's gospel, is for his hearers to confess that Jesus is the Christ. I think you're going to enjoy the journey. I think you're going to love this trip. Now, as we work our way through, there's three things that we're going to see. Okay, number one, the first thing we're going to see throughout the entire gospel is that Jesus is who Mark claims him to be. Secondly, is that Jesus calls for his hearers to commit themselves fully and completely to him. Mark is making... Certain that we hear the call to come and follow Christ, to commit our lives to the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly, we'll see throughout this book that in order to have true joy, everyone's looking to be joyful. Everyone's looking for happiness. In order to be truthfully joyful, it can only be found in being fully committed to Jesus Christ. That's where true joy is experienced. Now, while Mark was the first written account of Jesus' ministry, it also served as the beginning of a very distinct and original literary form that we refer to as the gospel. Notice, Mark really breaks new ground here in that he provides the very first record of gospel truth, that is, good news. It's the euangelion, right? That's the Greek, euangelion, which is from where we get evangelical or evangelist or evangelize. Okay, so let's look at it. Let's look at the verse. Verse one the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a full verse, beloved. That's one verse. That is a full verse. Claiming Jesus to be who He is, the Christ, God's Son. Notice the beginning, the beginning of. Now, most certainly, that's a reminder of the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, There was possibly a, a reflection of that in our reading this morning in 1 John 1. Notice 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, writes John, we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That is Jesus. Mark wants us to remember that the Bible begins with the story of creation, while the gospel here is the story of recreation. Re-creation. Now, we've seen foreshadowings of that in Exodus, amen? The erection of the tabernacle was God reestablishing holy ground on a fallen, cursed earth, a place for God to meet with his people, which was very safe if you follow the prescribed manner, very dangerous if you don't. Here now, he tabernacles among us. Now, beginning here... Right? the beginning of, signals for us the fulfillment of God's everlasting word. See, God's gospel, beloved, begins in, Je- in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Okay, That's where it begins. Where Adam, who was in paradise, sins, he's driven into the wilderness, paradise is lost, God says to Satan, God says to the dragon, God says to the tempter, to the liar, to the murderer, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the gospel is the story of God who from the fall moves to redeem humanity to himself by way of a human being. That is the redemption of fallen mankind by way of a man. So the mystery unfolds through the pages of Scripture, all according to God's covenant loyalty, not Israel's loyalty, God's covenant loyalty. And throughout the pages of Scripture, God moves forward. He calls Abraham to himself. He creates a people. There were no Jews. He made Jews out of Abraham. He creates a nation, the nation of Israel, through whom would come the promised offspring, the promised seed in Genesis 3. So what we have here in Mark is not the start of the gospel, but don't miss this. What we have here is the beginning of the gospel appearing in person. Appearing in person. The earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I want you to notice there's three different designations that define him. Name, title and identity. That is a description of his nature. Name, title and a description of his nature. Notice his name. He's Jesus, which was a very, very common, ordinary name in first century Israel, in everyday name. His human name, Yeshua, basically Joshua, meaning Yahweh, is what? Salvation. Yahweh saves. That's his name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel said to Joseph, Matthew 121. So he wasn't the only one with that name. That was a very common name. It was as common as is the name John. Jesus was one of the the, the commonest names around. Therefore, we read, Jesus of Nazareth. So as to distinguish him from other Jesuses of the day. But I believe it's very appropriate. Right? This is God. in, In his sovereign wisdom here, in his providential care, sends his son at just the right time. And he came to fully identify with common people. He was a real human being. Fully man. Yet, as you observe him throughout Mark's gospel, he is undeniably different than every other man. A human being, a real human being, Incredibly unusual. A man of unrivaled authority causing absolute astonishment. And Mark helps us to understand why. Notice. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be better to translate that the Christ. His title. His name is Jesus. His title? Christ. Christ. Christ is not his last name. Mark is saying, I'm writing to you about Jesus, who is the Christ. Christ, Christos, meaning anointed, royal, coming one. Anointed, royal, coming one. Christ is his royal title. The one who's been anointed is is royal king. He will be coming. That was the promise of the Old Testament. He will be coming. Speaking of an anticipated coming king, referring to Messiah. The Messiah. The one of whom the entire Old Testament speaks. He's coming to establish the anticipated rule of God on earth. He's come, he's king. Mark says here, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you that Jesus is that long-awaited royal king. That's what he's setting out to do. So the first half of Mark's gospel is devoted to doing just that, showing that he, Jesus of Nazareth, is the anticipated one. And then that truth, of course, reaches its climax in the middle, middle of the book, that's that watershed moment, that's the tipping point when Jesus says he he retreats a bit with his disciples, he takes them to a very pagan area, Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they told him, well, some say John the Baptist, you know, raised from the dead. John had been beheaded. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he said, who do you say that I am? Probably not in that tone. (laughs) But that's my tone. Who do you say that he is? Peter answered, You are the Christ. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Means the same thing. He's the anointed one. That's his royal title. His human name is Jesus. His royal title is Christ. He's Messiah, the anointed one. Simply beloved, he's king. He's king. The good news is about to be told. This is the story about the promised king. He's arrived, and he's about to inaugurate his kingdom, and he's about ready to bring in a new era of salvation, peace, blessing, and order in this fallen earth. But that's not all. Notice. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. Beloved, that is a claim of absolute deity. The Son of God. Mark is saying Jesus is God. The description of his identity, his lineage, the Son of the living God. One in nature with God, co-eternal, co-equal. The Son of God. Now, God the Father certainly knew who he was, the Son. Notice verse 11, Mark 1. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, as I pointed out earlier, the demons undoubtedly knew who he was as early as chapter 1, verse 24. If you notice in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, notice this. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They knew. You know, demons believe and tremble. A lot of people today say they believe in Jesus. They have some weird sketch in their mind as to who he is and what he did. Great religious leader, martyr, fill in the blank. But the demons knew who he was, and they trembled. And James points that out. The demons believe. You say you believe? You say you believe, James says. Where's the fruit of your faith? Demons believe, and they tremble. They'll be tormented in hell forever. Now, Jesus' detractors would eventually recognize his own claim to deity. Okay, you remember in John chapter 10? Notice this, verse 25. Notice, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Okay, notice what he doesn't say there. Okay, friends, Arminian friends, listen. He doesn't say you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. He said you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. Anyone given to the Son by the Father, will eventually come to believe. They will come in time. We don't know when the time is, but they will come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father what? Draws them to me. Jesus goes on, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him again. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, you make yourself God. Don't tell me Jesus never claimed to be God. To claim to be the Son of God is declaring equality with God. Therefore, they sought to kill him. But they could not. until it was his time. Who determined his time? He did. Now, it's not until the end of, of uh, Mark's gospel that we hear the truth of Jesus being God's son come out of the lips of a human being, and it happens to be a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. Notice Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Amazing. So Mark, here from the outset of his gospel, introduces us to to the beginning of the history of King Jesus. That is the incarnate Son. The gospel in person. Not the son of some earthly monarch. He's son of Almighty God. And then, if you notice, Mark moves immediately, we'll see next time, um, to citing the Old Testament scripture. Notice there in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will appear, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. So Mark equates Jesus with the Lord Himself. He says, "Make His paths straight." The long-awaited divine King, the Lord God, and Jesus are one and the same person, says Mark. So throughout his gospel, Mark, as as we read these accounts, indirectly raises the question: Is this the one? Is the one is the one I'm presenting to you the one you ought to trust in? Is the one I'm presenting to you, the one you ought to follow, the one you ought to commit yourself to? And then scene after scene after scene, he answers with an emphatic, "Yes, he is the one. He is." the one who appeared on this earth 2,000 years ago, beloved, this historical person who everybody agrees, secular unbelievers alike, lived in the first century Israel, you know, unless you're a blatant idiot who lives in denial, everyone knows he lived. He walked. He spoke. He taught. He declared himself to be the son of God. The fact is, he's God whose presence on this earth, the one who tabernacled among us, the one who fulfills all the foreshadowings of the tabernacle, the one who came and brought us a better exodus, a greater mediator, a greater everything. His presence on this earth is the decisive event in history. You want to talk about a watershed moment in the history of man? It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. He is God who condescended so as to reach out to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. What a gift. The reality of which, beloved, every human being has to come to terms with. Every human being must come to terms with that reality, with that fact. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, he rules and reigns, he inaugurated a kingdom, and he'll consummate that kingdom when he comes the second time first time he came to save, the second time he comes to judge. He is the judge. So God has made himself known by taking on human flesh, became a man. Jesus is that man. He is Jesus, who is the Christ, the one and only Son of God, who is God, the Son. A lot in that verse, huh? We'll see that he raises the dead. Who else can raise the dead but God or the power of God, say, through the apostles? He commands nature. He commands the wind and sea to obey, and the wind and sea must obey. He casts out demons by the authority of his word. And and who else can forgive sins but God? He forgives sins. Mark 2 7, we see it early on. Only God can forgive sins. So, question Who do you say Jesus is this morning? Who do you say he is? Have you come to terms with this Jesus? Have you? He is not a remnant of history. He's not a list of facts. He's not some mere religious leader, beloved. You know, this isn't a collection of ideas. He's the son of God who came and lied down his life for sinners before he rose again from the dead. Everything hinges Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I said before, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, throw the Bible away. Because everything in the Old Testament was moving towards that. Throw it away. He's the mystery revealed. Amen? He's the king. Intellectual assent to the facts, by the way, will not save your soul. You can intellectually agree with the person, the work of Jesus Christ... And you will go to hell. And hell is forever. The question is have you entrusted your very self to him? Do you believe in him? Do you realize that there's no good in you? There is no one righteous? No, not one. No one seeks after God. All are condemned. All who don't believe are condemned already. But there's deliverance, there's freedom in Christ Jesus alone. When you repent of unbelief and entrust yourself to Him, realizing there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to find favor in the sight of God because all your good works are nothing but filthy rags. He's our righteousness. He is our propitiation. He's God's propitiation. He pleased. He he, he propitiated the wrath of God. Now next... As we work our way through Mark's gospel, we'll see that knowing Jesus for who he truly is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, it leads to discipleship. Discipleship. Jesus calls for his hearers to commit our lives fully and completely to him. And Mark makes sure that we hear that call throughout the gospel as we shall see. So Mark's gospel summons its hearers to follow and submit. Notice in chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, they saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Look, before you can do anything for Jesus, you have to learn from Jesus. Some people just say, just go do something for Jesus. Look, you can't do anything until you know the mind of the man. You must know the mind of the God-man. What does he say about this, that, and the other? You have to learn from him. What are his priorities? What does his word say? And that means, beloved, we have to listen. We have to sit and listen before we give instruction. We sit at his feet. We commune. We ponder his words. We ponder his actions. We sit and we shut up before we do anything for him. And we listen. So we need him to instruct us so as to rightly lead us. So when we talk about following him, beloved, what are we talking about here? Because, I mean, these guys literally dropped what they were doing and they followed him. Like they literally walked behind him. And what does that mean for us? Jesus isn't here in a body now, in a physical body, for us to follow in the dust of his sandals. Amen? Well... There's something much deeper here, and it was, it, it was something much deeper then as well. It meant than, more than just merely following him around. Jesus did say, look, if anyone shall come after me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself, and come after me, follow me. And when you thought about a cross in that day, it wasn't like the one you wear around your neck. It meant death. It meant a miserable, horrifying death. So what does he mean, follow me? There's something more here. Beloved, this has to do with spiritual allegiance. Following Jesus has to do with spiritual allegiance, an obedience that flows from a very special connection to him, a very special connection to him, the living God. When we talk about following Christ, we're talking about being united to Christ united we are in union with him not only communion but the reason we have communion is because we're in go ahead and say it union with him a living union an everlasting union when we come to to come to our senses by the grace, the sovereign grace of the Holy Spirit, realizing we're lost, realizing that we're doomed, realizing we deserve hell, and we call upon the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the regenerating work of God, the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, the Bible says we're justified by faith, declared free from all blame, not by what we do, but according to what He did. So, We we, we are formed in union with Him. He joins Himself to us, and He lives, beloved, not only above us, but within us. He leads us, in other words, from the inside. Okay? But not haphazardly, but always according to what? His Word. He leads us from within, according to His glorious Word. He produces faith. He produces trust. We, we follow. This is spiritual allegiance by the work of the Holy Spirit which comes by way of grace alone. Remember last week, 2 Corinthians 3.18? We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the, the Spirit. Remember fame and luminosity? Glory. Fame luminosity. We share in that because we're in union with Him. We're in union with the living God and we're being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another to be fully manifest. When we see Him as He is and when we see Him as He is, we will then be like Him. Amazing. So here and now, He he leads us from within. And again, it's a, you know, don't, go, don't ever come saying, you know, the Lord told me this or told me that if it doesn't align with Scripture. Okay? God does speak to us, but it's always in connection to His Word, in context. And therefore, His life flows from out of us and we grow in grace upon grace upon grace. And then we become more and more like Him. You know, straying from His Word straying from fellowship with God's people, straying from this kind of rich fellowship. You know what it produces, friends? Stagnation. Stagnation. Indifference. An uncaring attitude. So we must stay engaged. This is what we'll see. It's a call to follow Jesus. So the challenge for us in this study is that As we move through, we have have to ask the question of ourselves, is there a conscious desire for increasing Christ-likeness within me? Okay? We each are going to say this. Is there a desire for Christ-likeness within me? I ask myself that question all the time. Is that desire there? I I mean, yes, to know about Christ, but but to know Him. Christ-likeness. Don't be afraid to ask that of yourself. Because third thing we're going to see in this gospel is that true joy can only be found in being fully committed to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, before whom we have to do. We will stand before him, either in him or outside of him. So, you know, all people are are, are in search of joy. They're in search of some kind of fulfillment, happiness, contentment. I mean, especially in America, Right? Everybody be happy, right? Don't worry, be happy. Right? Be happy. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, true joy can only be found in the Creator and what He's provided for us. And that is a union with Him by way of His Son that creates communion, and the communion of which can overflow. Where true joy, full joy, will ultimately be experienced. We can't can't experience full ultimate joy yet. Amen? Because there's still the tension of sin. And beloved, I do not think that we can comprehend how affected and infected our intentions, our motivations are are skewed because of the sin that still remains within us. Okay? But nevertheless, God still provides us this abundant grace. And we're going to see it. Chapter... After chapter, as he delivers people and lifts them up, giving them life, and they begin to follow him. You think about that demoniac in chapter 5. Just think about this. Here's a man who we read about lived among the tombs, running around naked, always crying out, cutting himself with stones, who often who was bound with chains, would break loose, in a mad frenzy, indwelt by legion. Numerous demons. Jesus shows up one day. Here's an utterly dehumanized man running around. He's uncontrollable, taking jagged stones, cutting himself up because demons, their desire is to destroy the image of God. And the only creatures made of Day are human beings. Jesus shows up. The, demoni- the demoniac was met by Jesus. And Jesus set him free. He sets prisoners free. In Mark 5 we read, After Jesus set him free, cast out these demons, the locals come up and they see the man in his right mind. It says, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Beautiful. It's God of grace. Now, the man who had been possessed, Jesus gets in the boat. He wants to go with Jesus. Notice, the man who had been possessed with demons, this is Mark 5.18, begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Did this man deserve to be delivered from this demonic affliction? No. God showed him mercy. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled, freedom, deliverance, union, communion with this, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in his joy, this man couldn't stop talking about Jesus. This is joy made manifest through the testimony of what Christ did for this man. Now, contrast that with the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus Knelt down before Jesus and asked him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he goes right to the man's heart. He knows how this guy's wired. Tells him, Well, you know the law. Well, I've upheld it since I was a youth. Liar. Liar. So after some dialogue, Jesus said, In spite of all that you do have, rich young ruler, how about giving it to the poor and then come follow me? And it says, the scripture does, that he went away, what? Sorrowful, not joyful. Sorrowful. Enslaved to his greed, the scripture says, because he had many possessions. Jesus is the only only way to freedom. He's the only source of freedom. So true joy cannot be found anywhere outside of commitment to this one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you know, gospel means good news. You can also interpret that joyful news. Joy. You know, as I said earlier, beloved, our joy is not yet full because we still have sin that we deal with. Right? Anyone else have sin that they deal with besides the guy speaking? (laughs) Okay, so there's the tension you see. and I've said this a hundred times, one of the proofs of being saved by grace through faith is that you still struggle with sin. And you recognize it as a struggle, and it burdens you. That's not a sign of death. That's a sign of life. Amen? That's a sign of life. So although now He provides us such joy in the here and now, one day that joy will be unadulterated, un- unhindered, unaffected, unmitigated joy in the fullest sense. We get taste of it now. Because he's the source of it. Amen? Jesus is the source of joy. He is sweet Jesus. The Christ. The anointed royal king. Son of the living God who tabernacled among us. He came in human flesh and laid his life down and raised it up again. He's ascended and he rules and reigns now from heaven above at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So here, Mark opens with the language of good news. That is, the king has arrived on scene, who is God himself. He brings a new kingdom, and that is a kingdom of blessing, a kingdom of joy, And, beloved, this is so wonderful, a kingdom of forgiveness. Forgiven. So our time in Mark will show us Jesus is exactly who Mark claims him to be. And may we, along the way, dear beloved, come to know him for who he is more deeply, more richly, and more joyfully. Amen? It's going to be a good journey. So, it's fast-paced, so put on your seatbelts, and I think your hair will be blown back in the wind, but may that cause us to affix our eyes on Jesus, is next time Mark introduces the herald who will announce his arrival, John, not the Presbyterian, but the, the Baptist.